So I want to tell you a bit about how I, how I see how some of these principles apply in some different situations, again, knowing that every situation is, uh, is unique. And I want to try to do it by, by integrating the questions of halakha with, uh, with, with being the pastor, with being, um, with being present for someone and being someone's, uh, someone's ear and supporter and guide. I started with the principle of pikuach nefesh, with the absolute or nearly absolute value of, of being alive. Um, I will tell you that, as I said, the, uh, um, there's no way to approach or think of condoning assisted suicide the way that's, that's talked about today in any way under Jewish law. And there was um, a bill up under consideration in the state legislature this past year to create a procedure by which, um, under certain circumstances, a physician could, um, could help a person choose to die under... under under the circumstances of um, certifying um, that they had an illness which would otherwise lead them to lead them to die within a certain period of time and um, and under the supervision and with the agreement of more than one physician and um, and I thought about this and I was um, I was troubled by this um, and if it had been a serious proposal I was certainly ready to, to write a letter to my representatives about it um, and and I was trying to think about what it is that um, right in some sense, who, who am I, you know, on the basis of my Jewish opinions to, to legislate around. And I thought about, um, on the one hand, what it would mean to have a group of healthcare professionals in the ha- not in the habit of, but with the capacity to, to assist death in that way. And I was just uncomfortable with the idea that uh, of leaving that judgment in, the, in human hands in that kind of systematic way or creating a medical system which, which did that. Um, and at the same time, the thing that it, that it clarified for me was that if a person came to me um, and said to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a long-term illness and I've been ill or I know that the prognosis for this illness is that at some point I'm going to begin to, to suffer and I can't imagine that I would want to um, suffer, I, I would understand that. And I have to say that if I anticipated for myself being in that situation, I would feel that same way and I would, and I would pray to die. And, and hope to. And, um, and as a pastor, I would say to this person that, well, I can't, well, it's not for me to, to, to approve of steps that you, might, that you might take, that it's also not my place to judge your, your prayers um, and your suffering. And it would not remove, and, you know, so, so in that way, as a rabbi, I would want to be present and supportive to someone who, who either knew it was coming or was in a process of really um, deep suffering that way. Um, and I would never withhold my concern and my care um, in that way for someone who was facing that, even though there was a, there was a line that I, that I personally couldn't cross um, in that way. The principle of the gosses, the person who is, um, who is about to die, and the question of um, things that we do that prolong death. Um, there comes a point um, in many illnesses where, where the treatment itself and the medication or the hospitalization or the mechanical breathing apparatus are uh, are not so much keeping someone alive as preventing them from dying. And um, under Jewish law, um, if a person is otherwise about to die and the only thing keeping them alive is a respirator, it is permissible to disconnect the, the respirator, even though you know the direct effect of that is that the person will die. The, the cause of death is not my, the doctors or the nurses disconnecting the machine, um, but the underlying which is causing them to die. Um, the question comes up about um, can a Jew have a, a do not resuscitate order in the event that I um, go into cardiac arrest, please don't revive me. 
And um, and again, the idea is if if a person who is otherwise healthy and would re- and would recover by being resuscitated could be resuscitated, we certainly have an obligation to do that. Um, but if a person who is otherwise um, uh, who is in such terrible physical health and who's and who um, wishes not to be resuscitated or the only way that that person uh, would be after being revived from a, from a cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest would be under great suffering. Uh, that person certainly at the point at which your heart is not being is a gosais, is a person who's who's about to die. Yeah, sure, sure. It is permissible, and I want to and and uh, so let me uh, let me outline a couple of situations, and then come, and then I'll talk about that, and that may be a segue to the questions and, and talking with Stephanie too. Um, the questions come up about um, about uh, at some point when someone is uh, when when treatment of any sort of medical treatment. Well, actually, I'll, I'll back up and say the question of the very very end stage of life. I would say even 10, 15 years ago, um, uh, Jews and rabbis particularly were a little squeamish about hospice care, um, which seemed like it was not at the which in the beginning was I think not considered to be respectful of life. And there's been a real change in the in the view about that, um, where hospice care has been come to understand as a way of of um, of giving someone life, of adding of adding to a person's living in a stage in which their their life is ending. Um, and there's, uh, in fact, just today I was very touched about this. I was invited by the the local hospice to be part of their 10th anniversary um, celebration, which I think they can. Um, I think the other questions that are the common questions are, you know, again, where uh, where where a person's in the hospital and the medication, the, simply the ongoing process of, of giving medication is is not helping someone is not helping someone live or is only only with very uncertain benefits and and with suffering. Then the medication is considered like, you know, um, like in the the early story, is simply something which is which is um, prolonging the process of dying. And to be, and to say uh, to put an end to the giving of medications, or as I said, mechanical um, devices that keep someone alive who is really otherwise about to die, um, that's considered to be permissible too. Um, I think the more difficult questions, certainly emotionally and also spiritually, have to do with uh, with nutrition and hydration, with food and with food and liquids. And um, um, it's interesting the uh, the things that I've been reading sort of some uh, contemporary rabbis um, make a distinction between. Um, between hydration and nutrition, that um, that certainly as long as and and here I, I need to um, defer. I think we would want to hear from people um, who are in medicine that the process of giving liquids or of, of hydration is to the point at which a person, a patient, can can take that. Um, that that is generally not considered to be a, a a painful process, a process that in and of itself causes suffering, and that that is just something kind of we do to to live as we as we breathe. Um, but if a person stops eating, um, if a person's unable to eat, um, the only way to the only way to feed a person, as I understand it, is through tubes and things like that, which introduce their own their own dangers and are, you know, some rabbis have said, well, that's um, you know that intravenous foods and liquids is is basically like medicine, and it's a slippery it's a slippery line that way. I think emotionally to us, it feels like giving someone. You know, eating and drinking is different from medicine, and just because it's—I don't know if it, you know, in some metaphysical way is, but it doesn't feel—it feels different. Medicine is medicine, and food is, and food is food. Um, but you know, the risks of uh, 
uh, even someone who's you know someone who's getting food um, through tubes, uh, uh, feeding tubes, and things like that is is under some substantial risks, and it's painful, and it's often suffering, and um, and it's not really prolonging life, as I understand it. I don't know if you want to comment on those on those kinds of things at all. And um, I think Jewish ethicists tend to say that withholding um, nutrition at that point, where we're really death is imminent is something that that is not unethical um, whereas it's a little more problematic in the case of uh, in the case of uh, hydration do you know yeah yeah come on up do you want to sit there we can we can convert to, to chairs to sit um, so I guess I just wanted just to respond to Shirley's question uh, for a second I wanted to just as, as kind of also my my segue the um, the scenario is not um, in any in rare, in rare situations, at least contemporary, where um, where somebody says, "Rabbi, tell us uh, tell us what to do." In this situation, in the hospital, the nursing home, or wherever, um, patients decide on the spot if they're able or having directed, written down directives before, or families decide, um, and those are ideal. And I think um, I brought these forms, um, which uh, which I connected with through the the hospital's website, which are I believe states authorized or state-approved forms for advanced directives and living wills. And these are important to have. And I think, um, again, to the extent that any one of us can articulate what we would want for ourselves, as I say, hopefully with, with thought about Jewish principles, but certainly with whatever principles you have, this is good for, good for you and good for, for any family around you. Um, the other thing I would say just as, I'm sorry, you should, yeah. Um, the other thing I would say, and, and it's often very helpful, I think, to a family if a person has, has written that out, especially when a family is spread out and is coming from long distances to try to try to get oriented to something. The other thing I'll say as an observer of many different medical systems, whether it's nursing homes or hospitals, is that um, I think there's a real big obligation on, um, as I said, on, on doctors, on social workers, on chaplains, whoever is around, to, um, to treat these questions as... Uh, as uh, as important emotional and spiritual questions, and not as we have to decide about whether to hang this bag, you know, right now on the on the wall. And um, to the extent that you know, one of the things that I sometimes will have to do, um, depending on where I am, is to be the advocate for that to slow down the the system to say we need to sit and talk about this. If they haven't already talked about it, let's help let's help people talk about it. Um, obviously, a good system is one where where every doctor, every nurse, every person on the unit is um, is trained to think of this and to and to ask what does somebody want, what does someone articulated, what does a family want. Um, that's certainly the kind of system we would want to have, and um, and uh, um, and which every family needs. If a family doesn't know to advocate for themselves in that way, too, do you want to say any? Yeah, I'd, I'd like yeah. to say just a very few things because I, I really appreciate the opportunity to questions and, and respond to them, but I would say this. First of all, I um, appreciate everybody coming tonight. It's important for people to know that these kinds of discussions occur in the hospital every day. It's not like uh, the people in this room are the only ones that haven't figured it out or, or haven't got it straight. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a dialogue. That happens all the time because everybody's different and everything is nothing is black and white. The second thing I would say is that uh, this discussion comes at a particularly good time because everything about end of life care has been about uh, do you want me to move my no, no, okay. has been about do not 
Do not resuscitate, do not intubate, put a tube, uh, do not feed, do not this. And this has really led, I think, to uh, a dilemma for a lot of people, an ethical and spiritual dilemma. And so of late, rather than talking about do not, do not, the terminology is now switching to A and D, allow natural death. And I think even talking about that really changes the dynamic of the conversation because the question is, are you standing in the way of a natural process? And, and you know, from an ethical frame, is that an appropriate thing to do? Versus, are you causing something by something you do or don't do? Um, just a few brief words about advanced directives. Um, in this country, we do not, as a general rule, talk about these things before it's a crisis. As Rabbi John said before, it's really not a great time to be having those kinds of very difficult discussions when you're in the midst of a crisis and you, know, you have a few minutes to decide X, Y, and Z. And this whole dialogue about um, living wills and uh, durable power of attorney for health care or health care proxy is something that really was never considered necessary uh, because your doctor knew you and he probably delivered you and your mother and your grandmother and you know there'd be the frank discussions but in this mobile society where the doctor changes every five minutes depending <coughs> on which HMO you have or you know they're moving around um, it's necessary to put to paper uh, what you would want, what your wishes were, or to designate somebody that can speak for you if you're unable to speak for yourself. And uh, as a matter of fact, it is a law that if you go into a hospital, whether it's uh, you're 75 and you have a heart attack, or you're 18 and having a nose job, uh, that you, that they ask you, do you have an advanced directive? And if you don't, can we help you put one? To paper because uh, of certain things that have happened in the past where uh, young people thinking themselves um, immortal, uh, infallible, um, have uh, not designated their wishes and then it's been up to people to try to interpret what they said while watching Grey's Anatomy, so forth and so on. <laughs> um, so um, it is highly recommended uh, so that you retain control over your own uh, health. Um, and right now, there's a, actually an initiative at the hospital to target the sandwich generation. And the reason that the decision was made to target the sandwich generation is this. Uh, young people are not very good at talking about these things because you know uh, of what they see in the popular media. And an older person, it's maybe a little too close to home to initiate the dialogue. But if you're one of the sandwich generation responsible for your children and your parents, um, you don't want to be either in a situation where your parent is incapacitated, they haven't executed, that's probably not the right word, they haven't um, 
signed a, a declaration of what they would want uh, if things were desperate. Um, and then you have to go for guardianship and so forth and so on. And likewise, you know, that something happens to your child who's over the age of 18, you have no jurisdiction over them. They're an adult. And, uh, you know, you can get into a difficult circumstance. So it is recommended that everybody have uh, these documents. And in the state of New Hampshire now, it, uh, it's a combined document. Uh, and they're relatively easy to, to uh, you know, write. So. Is one document valid in most states? An excellent question. And I would say this. Because it is a federal law that creates... Um, the uh, legality of designating a living will and uh, a, a proxy, healthcare proxy. Uh, they are valid in all states. The wording is slightly different in some states. Uh, but they are portable from state to state with the proviso that certain states have certain uh, nuances. Uh, I was just looking in the Boston Globe today. There was a, a very... Um, there's a very big story right now about a woman who was brain dead and the family wanted to keep her alive to harvest her eggs so she could give posthumous birth um, so they could have grandchildren. And uh, in, in the state of New Hampshire, you actually cannot disconnect a respirator if a woman is pregnant until the child is born. And there are other certain things like uh, your healthcare proxy can't commit you to a mental institution or have you sterilized. I mean, so if you have a proxy from another state that allows those things and you're sitting in New Hampshire, uh, it won't honor those aspects. But in general, the basics are portable from state to state. And again, yes, please. Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. And with all the traveling I do, I should. <laughs> um, I think the most powerful thing is uh, open dialogue and consensus with the family. Uh, because all uh, healthcare professionals throughout the world uh, are bound by certain ethical principles. Uh, and those ethical principles are uh, recognized as follows. One is beneficence, which is do good for the patient. One is uh, maleficence, which is primum non nocere, don't do any harm. You know, above all, do no harm, which gets back to the whole concept of you know, if you're doing something, you're giving some treatment that actually isn't helping people and has side effects, then you are harming them. Uh, Rabbi John mentioned autonomy. I have the right to decide. I may or may not want treatment, even though it may prolong the life. Um, or even though, you know, if you give me morphine, I may have less pain, but I would rather have my head clear. That's my choice. And the last thing is, is a very interesting one, which is less relevant to our discussion today, but it's called distributive justice. And that is to say, you know, when healthcare dollars are limited, is it, does it go to immunizations for all children or does it go to something else? So those are the, the general principles, and, and they apply in most countries. And I think that the problems you get into, frankly, whether or not you have a living will or a durable power of attorney, is when you haven't expressed your wishes, and there are family members that are scattered around, and disagreements start. Because I was very struck by something that Rabbi John said in the beginning, is that when you bring a family together to have these very difficult discussions, very often 
the turning point is when you say, um, this tragedy should bring family members together, not split them apart. And so what needs to happen here is everybody needs to get on the same page. And you do that by having an open and honest dialogue and allowing people to express their misgivings uh, and express their concerns and express their disagreements or forever hold your peace uh, because of the circumstances. The states such as Washington, what, what are the states where there's a little bit more leeway than Harvard or Princeton? Thank you, Shirley. Mm -hmm. So I'd say so. What, what does that say, well, I'll tell you, and are there like three of them, three different states? Uh, you know what, I'm not up enough on the literature about um, assisted suicide or euthanasia. I mean, there's certainly countries, uh, you know, um, the Netherlands, for example, where it's, it's uh, well accepted. Um, and, and I think that it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic, uh, going back to the concept that most medications that palliate, uh, that relieve symptoms, be it a narcotic, be it a... Uh, sedative, uh, Ativan, Valium, benzodiazepines, uh, they do depress levels of consciousness uh, in very fragile patients. And so there's no question uh, from uh, one perspective that those treatments hasten death. But, uh, you know, uh, and Rabbi John can speak to this more, um, but uh, people deserve palliation. They, they are deserving of, of pain management, of, of, of relief of suffering. And um, a dialogue that's, that's really becoming very prominent throughout the country, uh, much more prominent than the whole concept of uh, assisted suicide or euthanasia, is a right to pain relief. Um, I think there's been sort of a, a swinging of the pendulum that people are so worried about getting people addicted to narcotics and over-prescribing that uh, physicians are erring on the side of under-prescribing, and it's causing a lot of suffering. A lot of hospitals now even have palliative care teams yes. so that patients are more comfortable during the course of their care. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, there's some very interesting literature out there that says that um, patients uh, whose treatment included a palliative care consult uh, actually have much higher satisfaction, their families have much higher satisfaction, if you can call it that, uh, with the care process, with the death and dying process. Um, and actually, healthcare expenditures are quite a bit less. Um, so when you talk about value of healthcare, you talk about quality of life or quality of death, um, if, if you had a treatment, a medication, that costs less and gives everybody a better experience and better satisfaction, it'd be a bestseller. Um, so from that perspective, palliative care is, is definitely. Do you think as technology continues to allow whatever we, I guess I'm thinking that um, the whole concept of what is right um, and what characterizes it, it just worries me that in one hand that we have such advances and and at what point? I mean, it sounds as if, from what you're saying and what the rabbi's saying, people are much more on board with looking at the kind of long-term picture for the patient and 
it just seems to me, you know, where will technology end and do we have to kind of rethink what is life? I, I you know, I imagine both that we do and we we don't. I have I have a there's a uh, there's a uh, I remember heard the program Speaking of Faith, which is on uh, public radio. There was an interview within the last couple of years with a Jewish uh, professor, professor of ethics named Laurie Zoloff, who's at Northwestern, I believe, who I would love to, to talk with about these questions. I, I think that is, these, I think what you're talking about, these kind of technical things, technological things, do raise those questions. And I think we do have to think about what we think about them. I, I do also think that the, there's this other, Trend. I think the hospice trend is, is a part of it, which is to try to take try to take these things out of the realm of technology and kind of the medical factory, um, and to put questions of sort of life, the meaning of life, and, and, and life in the end of life more <coughs> more in the family than the home and the community, uh, the body. And I think we'll be healthier if we could try to back off. And I think there is a, I think there are movements to do that to not think of this as a technical question. How do I how do human beings live through hundreds? But but um, like what life is a quality. Yeah. I, I a couple of things. Uh, number one is I do think that the pendulum's gonna swing away from technology in certain circumstances. We just can't afford it. And I know that, you know, one of the barriers even to passing healthcare reform was the whole concept of death panels. And where that came from, very interesting, was a suggestion that physicians should be compensated, they should be able to charge for sitting down with a family and discussing end-of-life issues in advance directives. It wasn't an actual panel saying, oh, let's see, this person's blood pressure is, and so forth and so on. It was merely that doctors are paid for treating a symptom or treating a medical condition. They wouldn't be paid for helping people prepare themselves for the kind of discussion that you're talking about. Um, however, uh, many countries that have universal access to health care, which we do not have, uh, the balance is that they don't Put, they don't do a heart transplant on somebody who's 90 years old. Um, and, and I'm exaggerating, obviously, because there are some limits in the United States, too, but there will be that. I think the second thing is that our society highly values choice in everything. Um, and, and at some points, that goes too far. Um, you know, we say people can decide whether or not to wear seatbelts and helmets and, you know, that's New Hampshire with Rhea Dye. Uh, you know, but if I'm not wearing a seatbelt and I lose control of my car, I'm more likely to hurt you. You know, so it, 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 where, where, where does the choice end? And I think that in healthcare, um, it is very difficult for the healthcare team to say, you know, the range of choices here is, is not extensive. It's not unlimited. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, X, Y, Z really will not, you know, provide any value uh, in the quality of life. 
and isn't something that you should really be, you know, seriously considering as, as opposed to giving a full menu. And I think that you will see that dialogue uh, coming more. I saw something that, that I really liked um, last year. The, uh, uh, there was a priest, uh, priest physician who was uh, vice president at, at St. Joseph's Hospital here in town, and he was uh, responsible for the ethics committee in the hospital, and they had a procedure, um, a sort of formal procedure that anybody, a, a patient, a family, or a, or a medical professional could invoke and, and to invite a, uh, for a, a kind of ethical and what they really do is facilitate by means of really a series of questions, which were about um, uh, listing out the questions, listing out the, the different people who were involved, whether again it was the patient or the or the team, and um, and then trying to list out all of the competing values and interests, and um, and they would just you know generate for the for the for the team, they would just generate a report. They wouldn't say this is this principle is more important, but it was. Um, they, they would lay out a process for articulating things when things got muddied and confused. And uh, I don't know how prevalent that is in, in the medical system, but it's... Yeah, all hospitals today uh, are um, required, in essence, to have an ethics committee. Um, and their, their role is, in fact, to open people's minds to the various questions that should be asked. 